Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this, the very word of God, to us, as Isaiah spoke of the Christ to come. Father, we come here this morning from many places of faith and doubt, success and failure, skepticism and conviction. Meet us wherever we are, and Jesus, thank you that you are pleased to do that because you have died and have risen again, like we're just about to talk about right now. Father, on this Christmas Eve of all Sundays, we pray that you would do a good work in our midst through this ancient practice of the reading, preaching, and hearing of your word. 
Jesus, we pray all of this in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite 90s movies is Goodwill Hunting. And yes, I'm starting a Christmas Eve sermon with a 90s movie. How do you like them apples? Goodwill Hunting was an absolute classic. And there's a number of powerful scenes in Goodwill Hunting, including this one right here. So Goodwill Hunting stars a young Matt Damon, who co-wrote the script with his friend Ben Affleck, who also starred in the movie. And Goodwill Hunting is this young guy college age-ish, and had a really difficult upbringing, was brilliant in his own way, and was a little bit of somebody that was in a shell for various reasons. And lots of things happen in the movie. He has a therapist who's played by Robin Williams, and a key scene in the movie is an exchange when Robin Williams, the counselor, the therapist, tries to get through to Will Hunting that all of this horrible stuff that's happened in his life it's not his fault. And the scene goes like this. I'll give you some dialogue from the movie and also a little bit of stage direction. The counselor's name is Sean, played by Robin. Hey, Will, I don't know you a lot. You see this, all this? He holds up Will's file and drops it on his desk. It's not your fault. Will shrugs and says, yeah, I know that. Will averts his eyes to the floor. Sean says, look at me, son. Will locks eyes with Sean. Sean says, it's not your fault. Will nods and says, I know. Sean, no, it's not your fault. Will says, I know. Sean, no, no, you don't. It's not your fault. Sean moves closer to Will. Sean says, hmm? Will says, I know. Will stands up trying to keep distance. Sean, it's not your fault. Will, all right, Sean, it's not your fault. Will closes his eyes, he's fighting for control. Sean again, it's not your fault. Will says, don't mess with me. Will shoves Sean back. Will again, don't mess with me, Sean, not you. Sean says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And then Will breaks down, sobs, and they hug. I remember seeing that in the theater way back when I was in college, and during that scene, the whole theater was weeping. And I think we were weeping not only for Will, but also for ourselves in the sense that that scene strikes a chord with a universal longing. We want to be absolved. We want to hear that it's okay. We need to hear when things aren't, all, aren't our fault, that really, truly, and deeply, it's not our fault. But this is where I want us to drive during this sermon. Consider, in the multiverse of madness, a different Goodwill Hunting movie where the plot is rejiggered a little bit, and instead of Goodwill Hunting, having all these horrible things happen to him. Instead, he's the one that does the horrible things growing up. There's a lot of red on his ledger, specifically. Now, imagine if Will's done a lot of bad things, and say he's messed up himself, if Robin Williams, the counselor, does this same scene. Will, 
It's not your fault. 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 That scene wouldn't have landed. That scene wouldn't have been written if goodwill hunting was actually bad will hunting, right? It only works because he's the one that's been abused in all of these different ways. But that raises the question that we'll be talking about here. What do we do when it is our fault? What do we do when it's not you or you or you or you or you, but when it's me? In those moments, it's actually really dishonest and unhelpful to be told it's not your fault when it is. And if we're told it's not your fault when it is, that's why a lot of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, skeptical of spiritual realities, leaning in, leading out, convicted of Jesus, and all in between, that's why we walk around hiding a lot of shame. Because deep down, deep down we know that at least some things are our fault. And where do we go with that? Spoiler alert again, Christian pastor on Christmas Eve, in Advent, let's go to Jesus. Let's take that to Jesus. And it's Jesus who came from humble beginnings in the nativity, the Christmas story that many of you know, it's Jesus that lived a life of humiliation all the way to and through the cross. The cross is really good news, and the cross says some of it is your fault. But that's okay, because for this season and for our sin, Jesus is the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief in the language of our passage from Isaiah, who bore that sin and shame for us on the cross. And for the world in which we live, in which we participate, in which we act, of hubris, of conceit, of selfishness, we remember that Jesus came humbly and we're called in the same breath to humbly confess that I, that you, that we need forgiven. And so here we are in the last servant song of Isaiah. There's about four of them in this ancient prophetic book, and in the successive Sundays of Advent, like I've mentioned, we've been going through these different servant songs. This is the last one, tail end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah chapter 53. And typically so far, as we've heard about this, the servant, we've heard stuff about how the servant is going not just to the nation of Israel, but to all nations. He's going to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. And he's going to bring justice. Angel Garcia, our assistant pastor last week, talked about reconciliation in various dimensions. All that is true. Here, the songs of the servant take a decisive turn to say that it's the servant who will suffer. The servant is going to suffer. And the church interprets this passage specifically as not only pointing towards by happenstance, but by prophetic intention, as the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus not only echoes this passage, but fulfills it. This is where it was going all along. The servant of God, talked about so eloquently in the book of Isaiah, is the Messiah, Jesus, who not only will live with us, but die for us 
and then rise again. And we need the entire life and career of Jesus. We need manger Jesus, and we need crucified and resurrected Jesus. Because if we only have the Christmas story, but not the Good Friday and Easter story, that's not the full story. That's incomplete. If you only have crib, but no cross for Jesus, that's not enough. Because when we sing about the comfort and the peace and the joy, tidings of great joy for this Advent season, we can't fully get there, I believe, without forgiveness of sins. Because that's part of the human equation inexorably. So this Christmas Eve, what do we do when it's our fault? And the cross of Jesus of Nazareth tells everybody invitationally, when it is your fault, and it is sometimes, not all the time, Jesus says, put that on me. Let me carry that weight for you. So two parts from here for the rest of the sermon. Let's talk about Jesus, the suffering servant. Necessary number one for forgiveness. Necessary number two for new people. So Jesus, the suffering servant. Necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And then also necessary for new people. So Isaiah 53. Old Testament passage. If you know a little bit about the Christian Bible, Jesus comes in the New Testament after a lot of Old Testament stuff. And we've talked in different ways, both here in the sermons and then on the Sermon De Debrief podcast, the Post-Sunday Blues. If you're not in the habit of listening, in the new year, we got some new episodes coming your way of Sermon Debrief. All that is to say, wait a second, these servant songs of Isaiah were written long before Jesus. Are we sure that this is what these servant songs are pointing to? And this morning, instead of giving you another argument for that, I'll give you an aesthetic. I'll give you a story that goes something like this. And a couple of you have heard me maybe tell this story before. Before I came to Plant Liberty Church Collingswood, I was ministering in West Texas, which is considered the Collingswood of Texas. When I was doing church planting there, there was an older retired pastor who became part of my congregation Back in the 1970s, he lived in Europe, and as a Christian in his 20s, he was a part of, and some of you old-timers may have heard of Labrie Fellowship, led by Francis Schaeffer, who was a leading Christian writer and thinker in the late 20th century. Labrie was in Switzerland, really beautiful Swiss chalet type of area, and it was a retreat center, not just for Christians, but for anybody, a place that was known for welcoming people of lots of different faith backgrounds, worldview backgrounds, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, and I hope Liberty Collingswood embodies this as well. Come and hear about Jesus. So lots of dialogue, etc. One time my friend says, Francis Schaefer, the leader of Libri, was giving a lecture from Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant. And the main part of the lecture was that Schaefer just went verse by verse talking through, this is what this verse says, isn't that so like Jesus in his crucifixion? Next verse, isn't that so like Jesus? And there was a guy that raised his hand, towards the end and said, I'm, I'm not on board with all of this Jesus stuff. I appreciate hearing this information, but why are we making such a big deal out of the fact that all of this stuff is about Jesus in his crucifixion? Isaiah was there. And the church says that this is an eyewitness account, right? 
Schaefer paused and said, thank you so much for being here. You may not have been present at the very beginning of this lecture when I said, hey, there's agreement that this passage, number one, is not an eyewitness account. This is not in the Gospels. This is not contemporaneous with Jesus. But this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. And so it's actually something that in this passage, it is so like Jesus. And so one of the ways to break up this passage is to divide it into five stanzas. I don't necessarily think that Isaiah had pen to paper. Five stanzas would be great for this servant song, but I think it's a good way for us to be able to break into chunks to digest what is being talked about here. So the formatting in the worship folder and in the worship PDF has little breaks that show you where these five stanzas occur. First stanza kicks it off and also points to where it's going. One of the ways to read this passage, the fourth servant song of Isaiah, is like a U or a parabola. It starts high, Jesus goes low, but then it ends high again, pointing where Jesus is going, the first verse of our passage. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's coming in his resurrection, but first he's going to go low. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. First stanza, the servant eventually will be high and lifted up and astonish everybody, astonish the nations, because Jesus is doing something new. In Jesus, the God of the universe is doing something new. Second stanza, beginning at the beginning of Isaiah 53. Now verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But that juxtaposition of imagery, no form or majesty, but then on the other hand, a deep beauty grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, this is an arid climate. Here in South Jersey, we have a lot of green all the time. But this prophecy was given in an arid area. And so picture just for a moment a desert landscape with a vibrant crimson, say, or purple or yellow bloom coming up out of nowhere in the midst of the parched land. This is the inner beauty that the servant carries forward. Then verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This Jesus, the servant, the Messiah, is the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And if you come here this morning as a man or woman of sorrows, if you're well acquainted with the grief in your own life, Jesus gets it, and we're able to relate to him deeply. Skip ahead to the fourth stanza for now. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This servant is going to be put forward as a lamb of sacrifice. And you could read verses 8 and 9 in this fourth stanza, as a poetic embellishment of what we say in the Apostles' Creed. Every week, he was crucified, dead, and was buried. Or in other words, verse 8. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. But as we also say in the Creed, on the third day he rose again from the dead, which is intimated, pointed to in the last stanza, starting with verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. If you've been tracking with us through the Genesis sermon series, offspring, seed is such a key word. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, when the seed of the woman is promised, when God makes his promises to Abraham, offspring plays a key role. Here it is again. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why? How? What's going to happen? This stanza again. For the people of God, he shall bear their iniquities. End of verse 11. And now end of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus in his suffering is life for us. One way to read the Hebrew scriptures from beginning to end is that there is this dangling question which is not answered. Attention unresolved until the cross? How? How can the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in whom there is no sin, the creator of all things, for whom is goodness through and through and through, how can he dwell with a people that sins, whether Israel or any human being. What are we going to do with that? How is that bridge broached again? And the answer of the cross is, well, Jesus died and rose again to remove the barrier of that sin, to put it on himself, beginning in verse 12. He shall dis- Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. The church has called this atonement, where Jesus atones for our sin. And in some ways, the bottom of the U of the parabola, the keystone, I hear we live close to a keystone state, but I've never been there. I tend just to stay in New Jersey. But, but the keystone of this passage is the third stanza here. God is justly upset and against wrong and sin and evil. But verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. God has stricken the servant, and in that act, the the servant pays for our sin. Verse 5, He was pierced, there are two fours in this verse. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is our just substitute, and through his wounds, through his crucifixion, we are healed. For all that come to Jesus by faith, we know the forgiveness of God, the cancellation of debt through and through and through. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. What do you call 2023? If not 
And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. That's who we are. And that's what we do in this moment. But Jesus forgives and Jesus saves. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so now forgiveness is a reality. The suffering servant is necessary for the forgiveness of sins and also necessary that we would be new people. And the question comes to us, late modern West, hold on a second. And maybe you have such a skeptical thought yourself. Maybe you're in this boat. Thank you for being here and in dialogue with this sermon. But do we really need forgiven? Hold on. That just seems a little harsh. Why can't God just love us? And doesn't God, we're actually pretty awesome. Why doesn't God love us unconditionally and not worry about sin? And that, that type of thought has, has the sound of truth to it in this cultural moment. But understand, for starters here, that that type of idea is deeply enculturated here in the West and here in the West alone. If you look around the world and throughout the ages, we're kind of the first culture ever that has thought, hey, if there is a divinity, if there is a God, that God is going to be automatically and always predisposed to love us no matter what, because we're awesome. That's actually an aspect of enculturated arrogance when we think we're so great. But instead, think about any and every relationship in your life. When there's a break, when you don't care for and tend to that relationship, when you dissolve that relationship, when you fracture that relationship, when you go against it, when there's a break, is it really that easy to get it back? Or does payment need to be made? A Jewish rabbi put it this way, Abraham Joshua Heschel. There is an interaction between man and God, which to disregard is an act of insolence. Isolation is a fairy tale. When relationships are broken, there needs to be an accounting. And for relationships to come back together, somebody has got to foot the bill. In the Anger family, there was a sudden and unexpected death here in December, and so our whole family, week before Christmas, why, why would a lead pastor be gone the third Sunday of Advent? Well, if there's a funeral that one, that, that one needs to go to, and the funeral was really good, family time was really good, but I asked a few of you to, to, to pray ahead of time, because within my extended family, there are, and this is my family, I love my family, but, but there are some relational fractures there. And family time was good, but even in a sudden grief-filled death, those fractures are still there. Not even the death of a family member can paper over or hand wave or magic wand away relational fractures that are deep. So it is with our relationship with God. As with any relationship, so it is with God. Either there's a bill to pay or not. And that's how it's going to be in the coming months and years with my family. I'm sort of a, you know, I mess up all the time with my family as well, but, but I'm not one of the primary players in these fractures. I'm more of like the Switzerland that, that tries to make peace. Sometimes I feel like I'm as ineffectual as Switzerland is in actually making, making peace in the world. But there is a bill to pay. But because I'm not directly involved in some of these conflicts as the one that wronged or the one that was wronged, I can't pay for it. I just can't. Because I'm not involved in that axis. 
And for there to be reconciliation, Angel was talking about some of this last week, for there to be reconciliation, somebody's got to pay. Say, I'm, I am the one that, that was wrong, for example, even if I get over it and re-extend relationship when I don't feel like there's been forgiveness, reason for forgiveness to be granted, etc., I'm paying. Because I'm saying, I'm going to suffer for this wrong done against me instead of working through a process and asking the other person to put in the work for it, that person's not, I will suffer for it. I will pay the bill to come back into relationship. Necessarily, somebody's got to pay. And that is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. And again, if you're skeptical of spiritual realities, you, you may be in the headspace that any talk about sin is toxic and bad for, for modern people. And I get it, I really do. But I'd want to ask, okay, if, if sin, wrongdoing is just something we need to get over as a culture, as a concept, as a society, why doesn't that work? Why do we still spend so much time hiding from other people, not knowing, not wanting them to know the true, the real, the deep us? Why do we still feel shame? So yes, we can think sin is bad, but we have this burden. We have this shame anyway. We hide, which should tell us something. But I think the logic, culturally speaking, goes something like this. Uh, we, we don't want to talk about sin because that's going to cause shame in people, and that's really harmful. I understand that syllogism, but understand that Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection radically reframes that whole equation. Because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. It's kind of like this instead. It breaks the connection between your sin and your shame decisively and forever because the debt is canceled. Instead, if you believe in Jesus, it's like this. Your sin is on you, but your shame is on Jesus. Your sin is yours but your shame is Jesus. Your sin is yours, but your shame is Jesus. Your sin is yours, but the shame is on Jesus. That lets us let the acknowledgement of sin in and find true and deep freedom. We're wrapping up here in a couple of minutes. It is the call of Jesus Christ upon us as we receive him by faith to live out that good news. And we're called never to outgrow, never to get over that good news. And we're called to enact it with other people. Do you know one of the ways that community can become really fractured if nobody forgives anybody? Do you know how we can actually move towards forgiving other people? Jesus. Community without forgiveness doesn't work. And we see that playing out here in the West and around the world over and over and over and over again. But instead we have Jesus crucified and resurrected who says, I'm the resource. Forgiveness can actually happen as we have been forgiven by Jesus. It enables us to give truth and love to other people and forgiveness, reconciliation is a really complicated thing 
process looks different in every case. It is a case-by-case -case basis is how you fine-tune that process. But the bottom line is that in Jesus, it can happen, and it's real. And also, Jesus gives hope for the world. Peace on earth and mercy mild. One of the things that we talk about and sing about here in this Advent season. Is peace on earth even possible? Maybe like you, like me, we're doing a lot of podcast listening and reading articles, year in review type of stuff. And I wish that there was a way that this could actually be measured. Maybe there's an AI for this, either now or down the road. So this is only anecdotal. I'm not a research scientist. I'm only mistaken for one constantly. But it seems like, including this year, as I hear end-of-year reviews, articles, podcasts, etc., where people talk about where we're going to from here, and over, again, over and over again you hear a throwaway line, well, as we look ahead, if there is a future, if we're here in 20 years, if we're not blown up or burned out by then in a lot of ways, if we have a country, if there is a functioning global community, and so on. And it seems to me like pessimism for the future of life, the universe, and everything, at least here in the West, is plummeting and actually is worse than it used to be. But if Jesus truly gives peace on earth, that changes the narrative for us. And one other difference between secularity and the Christian story Secularity probably says something like, if peace on earth is going to happen, we'll have to work for it and or it'll be an accident. But it's doubtful. The Christian story says something very different. If peace on earth is going to happen, we're not going to earn it. We're not going to work for it. Jesus is going to do it. But it's not doubtful. It's promise. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Because Jesus paid in his blood. It's not in doubt, but it's certain. And that narrative gives us hope. So we begin with forgiveness because that's what the world needs. Are we going to save the world individually or even as Liberty Church colleagues would? Yes. Probably not. But as you take steps of living, speaking, and serving as Jesus' very presence to live out the cross of forgiveness in life, that makes a difference for everybody. And so in Advent season, Good Friday season, Easter season, and everything in between, own your sin and know the freedom of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.